Hello and welcome to the FDI podcast. I'm Seth O'Farrell, Global Investment Reporter at FDI Intelligence. And in this episode, we'll be delving into China's Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI, the economic development strategy adopted by the Chinese government in 2013. We'll be looking at its precedents, both ancient and modern, and what it might tell us about the relationship between market and state in the world's second biggest economy. With me to discuss all of this is Minye, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University, whose new book, The Belt and Road and Beyond, State Mobilized Globalization in China between the years 1998 and 2018, seeks to debunk some of the preconceptions we might have about the development initiative. Hi, Min. Hi, Seth. Thanks for coming on the show. I thought I'd start by asking, broadly speaking, what is the BRI and what are our gaps in how we understand it? Yeah, so the, uh, the, the terms uh, came from uh, two announcements uh, by Chinese uh, leader Xi Jinping. And so in uh, late 2013, he first announced the uh, Silk Road Economic Belt in Kazakhstan. And then a month later, she annou- he announced uh, the uh, 21st Maritime Silk Road uh, in Indonesia, so shortened as the Belt and Road. Um, it's been seven years, and I think the external uh, observations uh, have two waves of misperception. And so the the first uh, uh, sets of misperception in the early stage of BRI from 2013 to 2016, um, and the that misperception was. Uh, uh, dismissal, right? Um, so they, 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 uh, most of them uh, didn't see the significance uh, of the BRI. And in my view, that's because uh, uh, Western uh, perspective policy has to be a statement of clear intent uh, and uh, a set of procedures to implement the policy. Uh, and the BI was not like that. The BI did not have a clear intention and did not definitely has no mechanism implementation uh, all the time. And then in 2017, and the, the statistics came that uh, China's outbound FDI uh, rose very rapidly in the year. And then the 2017 BI summit, uh, the, uh, it was like such a major event uh, in Beijing uh, and uh, uh, President Xi uh, announced that this would be the project of the century, right? So then this get all other uh, observers like really uh, take this very seriously uh, and also uh, exaggerate, in my view, exaggerates its uh, strategic ambition. So popularly portraying this as a uh, as a China's uh, grand strategy to dominate the region, if not the world. I think this, again, is based on misperception. Fundamental roots is a misperception of the Chinese system because the uh, outside outsiders tend to see President Xi as, they say, strong leader and has cohesive control of the Chinese state and the Chinese capital. So it's like once he had this term, then this will be executed strategically and cohesively. And and, and my uh, book 
as as well as my follow-up work in that's not the case and so you have this strategic rhetoric from the top but implementation inside china by chinese bureaucracies local governments and state-owned companies are very different things Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting that there's a sort of there's this very interesting shift between 2013, where it's basically underestimated and disregarded the uh, rhetoric that surrounded the Belt and Road. From 2017 onwards, the, it, we kind of go the other way and we over exaggerate um, its importance. And indeed, uh, lots of Western observers seem to essentially brand this. Um, uh, brand the BRI as the result of his presidency's vision of unity and strength. When what you're saying um, and what you outline, I think, very brilliantly in the book is that if you look at it the other way around, if you look at it from an internal perspective and not an external perspective, you actually see some of the some of the fundamental uh, rudiments of how this is working. So can you tell us a little bit about how you've you've kind of turned um, turned it inside out, as it were? You're looking at how the BRI is actually the result of domestic policies and economics. Yeah, so uh, so the first phase, I see it as more significant than, than outsiders. That's because I was uh, uh, conducting uh, a few research uh, uh, in China uh, throughout uh, this period, right? so 2012 to 2013 and 14, and I uh, studied China's uh, domestic economy and regional diplomacy and uh, uh, and the strategic debates that it was under, and so I I saw how uh, much uh, the difficulties and pressure and crisis that the the Chinese uh, government was facing. Right. So uh, politically, uh, in two thousand twelve, we we know there was an elite uh, politics crisis, uh, and then there was also the uh, anti-corruption campaign cutting through the bureaucracy and so the the uh there's so so much disruption uh on the on the on the government uh in in those years and this then, includes sorry for the for our listeners that don't know this includes the boshilai scandal that's right, that's right. So, Lai, uh, event was a big shock in the elite politics circle uh, and then anti-corruption uh, campaign that's from the top to bottom, so that that really um, uh, 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 silenced or or made uh, uh, officials, rank and file officials, uh, extremely uh, careful uh, and, and worried. Uh, and on top of that, the Chinese economy was going through major troubles. Right? So the uh, national uh, financial policy was to tighten. Uh, the, uh, the the inflation uh, and then the uh, at the local level uh, overcapacity uh, was so um, imminent uh, and the idea was uh, laying off workers and shutting down the companies uh, would be very destabilizing uh, and, and yet uh, no one could do much right? so that's uh, the domestic uh, aspects and then diplomatically uh, China's relationship with its neighbors were extremely contentious, and the, the wider view is uh, its a relationship with uh, not only smaller uh, land neighbors, but maritime neighbors. And then the uh, U.S. actually created the last store, I'd say, uh, the uh, Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership. Uh, it was uh, progressing so well. 
uh, in 2011 and 2012, and uh, by getting Japan uh, to join the TPP. And this, this practically to China was like the world's largest free trade agreements uh, right surrounding China and yet excluding China, right? Um, so the Chinese uh, felt the pressure of the, uh, from the US and its, its allied uh, uh, neighbors. Um, so when the BRI, the two announcements were, were very brief, so I don't uh, criticize external observers for missing them because it, it, it was not like uh, this uh, grandiose uh, uh, announcements of, of a strategy or sorts, right? Um, so it was just a, a rather a small uh, proposals, uh, a set of actions uh, that it, it's, it's reasonably common uh, among China's uh, uh, leadership uh, uh, speeches of, uh, abroad. Right? Uh, but the, uh, once it was announced to the Chinese bureaucracies, and, and to these uh, actors, that was like uh, important. And so we have now have a leadership was talking about uh, the Silk Road Economic Belt and was, was, was mobilizing that China to go, uh, go, go abroad. And, and remember she, uh, uh, in, in speaking to the uh, ministerial uh, leaders uh, and the, the 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 rhetoric he uses was uh, the Silk Road Economic Belt and the Maritime Silk Roads are the two wings of the Chinese uh, rock uh, in Ch Chinese called Da Diao. Right? So it's it's massive, very uh, uh, appealing uh, uh, bird uh, of China, and that will allow it to fly higher and fly farther. Right? I, because I was there. And I, I saw how the paralyzed uh, bureaucracy and think tank uh, people uh, just got really excited and began to roll out and you know, rapidly roll out different proposals, projects that they had been uh, uh, deliberating and thinking beforehand. So I know no matter what this happens, ability to re-energize the Chinese state was very significant and it allows, and as a China experts, we know that when you have a leadership program that allow subnational actors, state-owned companies to uh, uh, improvise uh, their, their projects and to commit resources. And that's, that's how the Chinese uh, big uh, uh, projects got done. Uh, that's 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 a very consistent uh, state mobilized globalization in China for years. Mm -hmm. And how helpful is we talk a little bit about the misconceptions that we might have um, and what we might have missed in the West in the early years and then in the latter years. How helpful is the Silk Road as a term to be used? In this context, I mean, there's also many other terms, grandiose or erroneous as they may be. Uh, Chinese Marshall Plan. Um, it's also we also sometimes talk about soft power being exported, neo-colonialism. How helpful are these terms? Yeah, I think the uh, the, the other terms uh, uh, have been uh, used in China as well. You know, the soft power idea uh, started uh, in the 1990s and really being promoted in 2000s. And the Marshall Plan, of course, the one of the predecessor of the BRI 
project were really the Chinese Marshall Plan idea, started in 2008 and then was uh, ongoing until 2015. Um, there, there are a a couple of things, I, I think uh, in terms of Marshall Plan, um, that, that uh, uh, it, it creates a lot of resistance inside China. And so they uh, have this misperception um, that Marshall Plan was about just giving out money and the Chinese uh, popular audience did not like that. And, uh, and second, it's also like raises uh, the implication that um, because Marshall Plan was a US hegemonic plan, right? And so the idea is the Chinese Marshall Plan is China competing uh, with the United States and taking over uh, the kinds of hegemonic role that the US was pursuing after World War II, right? And again, that was seen as too dangerous and uh, uh, too ambitious. Um, and that would go to the, the soft power uh, as, uh, similarity as well. It just doesn't sound Chinese uh, and it doesn't fit the kind of Chinese uh, uh, vision or aspiration uh, and its goals and objectives in the world at least at this time being. The Silk Road, uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, for right or for wrong, uh, it, it, it just has this very, very romantic and uh, appealing uh, memory uh, on Chinese uh, elites thinking. Uh, it, it represents uh, the good period. Uh, it's uh, open. So Silk Road is never just about China projecting influence. It's also receiving lots of influence. And it's at a time that the Chinese civilization was at the top, right, and feeling secure. So it was very open and receiving and sending. So uh, again, it might be historically incorrect, but that is uh, the, the elite perspective and perception of the Silk Road. So having a Silk Road, no one can res resist it, right? <laughs> Who does not want China to be like that? Uh, so number one, <laughs> it's like, um, it, it, it's unresistable. Uh, uh, and uh, two, it, 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 it allows going in and going out and in culture, in economy and other uh, things too. So it's actually very uh, ingenious uh, concept that, that, that it was uh, being promoted. And so that, that I think it was, was very important, the historical message and the contemporary aspiration that China is pursuing. I would say aspiration, not ambition, because I think that the, the, the aspiration aspect of the, the elite's thinking is really important. That it is essentially more romantic than yeah. the lots of the coverage in Western media would give it credit for. Um, right, as a right. sort of, it's yeah. it's as if um, Western observers or commentators are, are falling into a sort of PR trap, yeah. as it were. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that uh, you mentioned or and draw out in the book is the fact there's a precedent to uh, state mobilized globalization in China and that the Belt and Road is essentially the third iteration of that. We have um, mm -hmm. two previous forms before that. Can you explain a little bit about what those were? Yeah, so I actually see a lot of parallel between the Western Development Programme announced in 1999 uh, by uh, uh, President uh, uh, Jiang Zemin uh, and the, the, the Belt Road Initiative um, because it, it both involves a spatial fix 
of, of, of the domestic uh, economic problems. Um, so I have to uh, step back because Chinese bureaucracy, the politics and bureaucracy are very complex. As we just said, there's so many different interest groups and different bureaucracies uh, and coordination is typically very hard. And this is a biggest uh, misunderstanding outside China. You think China is a one party or even one person ruled system, uh, but actually it's very complex. So in such a system, crises tend to have very uh, important critical roles to play. That's because the, uh, the interests and the ideas and uh, the need or imperatives for change typically were present in the system. And yet because the system was so divided and complex, so nothing could be done easily. So this was very clear in the 1990s. Throughout the 1990s, the Western gap in development from the East was such a big challenge for the ruling elites, both a political challenge because two thirds of the provinces uh, were not happy uh, and they were pushing the, the, the central leadership to make uh, adjustments. And it was not, it was also very uh, criticized by economic planners because their impacts on planning across the country was deeply undercut because of the separation. Um, and then the uh, inflationary, so there are two things that happened in the late 1990s. One was the overcapacity. We'll find the Chinese struggle with overcapacity uh, consistently because this economy is a producer economy, right? So once it produce and then it always uh, constantly face uh, re repeated cycle overcapacity so in the 1990s, the uh, inflational investment and uh, overheated economy uh, from 1993 to 1996 was already creating very severe overcapacity that the uh, leader Jiang Zemin was going around the world just to sell stuff, you know. Uh, and, uh, uh, and then uh, uh, 1997, the Asian financial crisis occurred and uh, its export market just shrank significantly and uh, foreign investments that were supposed to come and hire more uh, people and that also was uh, was was in decline so in that moment uh, and then the the leader uh, saw that expanding uh, uh, the economy into the West, creating jobs in the Western part of China. And in the near term, if, you, if China could uh, revitalize the West and connect the Western, actually West would be the two thirds of China into uh, 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 the high uh, growing coastal area that would offer significant uh, opportunity for, uh, for continuing growth. So he launched the Western Development Program under the, uh, uh, the rhetoric that if China wants to be a great country, how can we not have a Western development? Right? Uh, and about uh, a very similar situation as a BRI. Once the leader uh, made this announcement, then the uh, State Council, uh, there's a, a, a planning commission and ministry of uh, the resources, uh, energy, uh, they, they all 
started uh, planning out their uh, their projects, and those projects uh, were all in terms of integrating the West to the East, um, and and uh, 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 regulating uh, the, the 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 economy, uh, in particular electricity and energy and transportation standards uh, at at the national level. But I also uh, point out in the book uh, at the uh, provincial level, uh, the uh, uh, Beijing uh, pushed the Western uh, provinces to conduct a very serious state-owned enterprise reform because that would be very difficult to do under normal circumstances. Um, and then at grassroots, right, so these uh, counties, uh, townships, and cities, and they were also mobilized to free their land uh, investment scheme, uh, schemes and attract investments and factories from coastal China. So there are different waves of activities being energized after the announcements of Western Development Program. And I see very parallel uh, situations in the in the BRI. Yeah. And of course, the other thing is, is that they're both born out of crisis. That's your your other ultimate point in a in the context of kind of very complicated bureaucracy. It is mm -hmm. crisis that is the greatest mobilizer. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely, because the ability uh, to uh, address crises uh, is uh, essential to the avoidance of collapse. You know, so the the, the Chinese uh, uh, Beijing the rulers, uh, the one biggest concern uh, is to maintain stability, to avoid uh, some kind of uh, debacle or collapse. And so, when you have crises that that would mobilize the leader to intervene and uh, the uh, different levels of government units to uh, find a solution to address that tension locally. And um, when we look at the history of China moving from, as you described, from a middle power to a superpower in the space of effectively 20 years, um, and it joins the WTO in what the late 90s, early 2000s, part of that story that we, we've been very interested at, at FDI intelligence is that it has shifted from being a destination of FDI to a source of FDI. Um, how unique is this, do you think, in the history of economics? And can we expect other economies to take a similar path? Yeah, so I, I think this uh, is a, a normal trajectory, right? So we saw how the other East Asian uh, economies uh, grew from these uh, trading companies to uh, investing uh, economies. And even India, uh, which is uh, was at a relatively comparative stage as China, and then became a rather influential investor uh, in the world. So, but I think China's case uh, was uh, unique in the sense is that the trajectory is slower. And I, I, I can uh, see why, um, because the Chinese government uh, uh, is uh, much more interested in domestic development than, um, than, than returns on the capital. Right? Um, so the, the Chinese government uh, deliberately uh, uh, implement pro-FDI policy in China for about 20 plus years, right? So it's, it's really, they, they, uh, they give uh, subsidies to incoming FDI, but they restrict 
uh, China's money going outside. And so even when, uh, and so, and, and then when the, uh, the Chinese uh, domestic industry uh, kind of situates, and, and then they uh, needed to upgrade their industry, uh, the Chinese way is to use incoming FDI. Uh, except they are of different types in different sectors. So you'll find that uh, if foreign investors uh, are in line with the China's domestic development agenda, those investors really got rid of copy treatment, right? The most recent illustration is Tesla. Right? So Tesla got so much subsidy from, uh, from Shanghai um, and previously was Apple. And then earlier, you, 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 you will be able to find in how the Chinese sees uh, the, their, their development goal and how the, the uh, uh, embrace uh, uh, FDI in those sectors and with that particular uh, technology and international networks. So this is one, they, they prefer FDI and they attract FDI, they see FDI as, as very instrumental to their development uh, 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 agenda. And the second is I think they still uh, very much prioritize domestic economy over capital expansion. Uh, and so they have this uh, poor country mentality uh, that, that the money needs to be left inside. So in particular, if you invest outside, you are using foreign exchange and they really do not want to uh, 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 have too much capital outflow. So it's really the government capping down uh, the control uh, uh, then, uh, then, then letting them them go. So the idea that China is uh, is promoting uh, uh, outbound investment to seek uh, international influence uh, that that's uh, that may work for a few um, banks and a few uh, uh, technocrats, but as a whole, this is just uh, against the Chinese net, uh, economic planners' nature. That's not what they 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 do. Right? And now, of course, um, yeah, because of the um, external environments and there's so much suspicion of Chinese companies uh, as they, they, they go out. So uh, all these extra security surveillance and restrictions and risk against the Chinese companies. Um, so, uh, and so that is a bigger deterrent as well. We see this big drop of outbound investment after 2017. So a part of the story was the external risk and external restriction that the Chinese um, uh, uh, companies uh, face. So in a way, I feel like uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the external, uh, why uh, foreign uh, uh, extra uh, security would not bother Beijing because they, they don't care, right? They, they want to keep the, the investors at home um, uh, anyway. Uh, and that you can see very clear in the, in the FDI chapter uh, in, in my book, and you know, so I, I, I talk about how how the national regimes were set up to discourage outbound investments, uh, then then letting the the commercial decisions decide. And under specific circumstances, such as China goes out, and such as BII, it does allow investors to make much freer commercial decisions to go out than otherwise would be under the regulatory environment. So 
investors are going out. They are outbound. FDI, Chinese FDI is is happening. Um, but what you're saying is that it's it's actually not embedded into the kind of economic journey or the economic planners' mm -hmm. vision of where China is going because it's actually more concerned with consolidating itself before mm -hmm. going outside. Or and therefore the uh, the the over exaggeration that we might um, fall foul of of uh, saying that China is seeking influence um, forms of soft power basically all over the world is challenged by that point. Yeah, I think in general, the political interests of Beijing are to keep the money at home. Uh, but they all, uh, as I underscore, uh, China is not monolithic. Right. Uh, so we do have these um, uh, the banks uh, or the large state-owned capitals. Their interests are in having better returns on their investments on the assets. So they do see like if they invest abroad, you, they get twenty percent annual return. If they invest domestically, it will be less than five percent. Right. So that was a big incentive for them uh, to push for the government policy liberalization or circumvent uh, policy uh, restrictions. Uh, and then if they uh, conducted too much of those uh, uh, outflows, then, then the regulators step in. So, so I think the, the, the Chinese really, uh, it, it's divided. And, and, but in general, if we look at the, the, the laws and regulations, then it's a less um, uh, permissive or oh, the capital outflow, then the market or the capital incentives would indicate. And, um, so the book was written pre-pandemic and uh, came out in print last year in March, just as the pandemic was taking hold. Um, and of course, the book only goes up to 2018. Um, but I wondered what effect do you see, um, or have you seen, if any, on in 2020 on the Belt and Road Initiative? And what are the what are the roadblocks ahead, do you think? So I think uh, as a, my uh, uh, consistent uh, belief uh, is that uh, China's external behavior would be largely decided by internal priorities. And of course, it also um, reflecting the external environment it will face as it go out or before it goes out, right? Um, so with that uh, uh, underlying uh, drivers, uh, I uh, have, uh, so I have a new article um, that's published in January this year in Asia Policy. So this one, uh, I uh, focus on the discourses uh, and the policy actions in China in 2020. And uh, uh, it, was, uh, it was clear uh, that China's three uh, justification for BRI uh, still uh, remained. Uh, one is a need, the strategic need to de-escalate US-China competition. Uh, the two is uh, uh, seeking uh, diplomatic space, right? so diplomatic ambition is still there. Uh, and then the uh, economic uh, globalization needs, right? because the Chinese be uh, believe, do believe uh, that a global recovery or global economy would be essential for China to achieve its economic prosperity. Right? And then action-wise, I also uh, uh, observe uh, uh, local governments, uh, even throughout the, the pandemic, were trying to save and uh, uh, secure 
their uh, investment assets uh, abroad. And, and when, they, uh, when the pandemic was done, then the activities actually revived. And state-owned companies, uh, uh, same thing. And they, they, they want to keep their projects abroad and want to save those projects when they are possible. Because a lot of the projects are actually part of a, uh, a supply chains inside uh, the state-owned company. So they can't just cut one and, uh, without cutting a whole bunch of other uh, investments. And then the national governments were also uh, trying to stabilize the BRI uh, by focusing on e-commerce and uh, infrastructure, uh, uh, digital infrastructure, uh, and uh, the kinds of uh, health uh, uh, development or health uh, collaboration uh, um, uh, in, uh, that would facilitate uh, the BRI. Uh, but again, there are two things that will change. One is uh, China's domestic economic priority and uh, capability have changed right? um, uh, from before COVID and uh, after COVID. Uh, the domestic priority have a lot, uh, well, those priority were there, but now it's expedited. One is digital infrastructure. And so the digital digitization of the economy and digital infra infrastructure and uh, digital commerce versus traditional commerce, that trend is being expedited significantly. And the health, so before COVID, the health BRI uh, uh, was promoted by uh, the, the President Xi, but did not get much uh, commercial buy-in. And so companies were not doing uh, much. But now I think the calculation has significantly changed. So the health BRI is, uh, is growing. And then the third area uh, is uh, supply chain restructuring the 14th five-year plan and uh, and other uh, economic uh, statements show that they 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 see uh, that the previous supply chain to be um, risky uh, and it's up for disruption too quickly because that kind of vertical supply chain <laughs> so now they're trying to create this more resilient uh, horizontal supply chain. So I anticipate that in the BRI regions sites, uh, perhaps some of this, uh, this supply chain uh, 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 reorientation will be happening. For example, the, um, the European uh, 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 China European Railways, right? Uh, it's previously was just transportation. Now it's kind of a mobile storage or e-commerce. Right? And so what do they need to just uh, establishing, constructing these uh, pockets or logistic parks and uh, along the, the roads. So we can imagine that the, the, the large uh, uh, infrastructure uh, and uh, those large energy heavy Resources are heavy in uh, uh, projects are likely to be um, to be uh, in decline. Uh, those that have already signed, we, we don't know. Uh, that perhaps we'll we'll see a lot of restructuring, uh, but moving forward, the smaller uh, projects that uh, facilitate uh, digital health and supply chain restructuring. Uh, are happening and those are in line with China's development planning for the next five 
to 30 years. Uh, and it's also uh, in line with external environment. Okay? So the recipient governments are more, uh, are, are going through transformation and the financial ability of funding larger projects are in decline. So we can anticipate um, stabilization of the BRI, um, smaller supply chains or shortened supply chains, mm -hmm. um, an increased effort um, on the digital side of things or on digitalization in many different forms, I imagine, mm -hmm. um, and on, on health. That's, that's, what we should, that's what we should expect for, for the, yeah, for the years right. to come. Yeah, I recommend uh, my uh, Asia policy uh, article. Okay. Um, great. Well, thanks very much, Min, for um, for speaking with us. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating to march through the history of the BRI in the last 20, 30 years. I mean, and even further back because we talked about the Silk Road as well. Um, and yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks very much. Well, thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do follow us on Spotify, Acast, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so you can access more episodes in the future. You can also head to our website, fdiintelligence.com, for data-driven analysis and deep dives into what's moving foreign direct investment and economic development. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.